Please turn in your Bibles to Philippians 2. A couple of weeks ago, I was having a conversation with a brother in the church, and we were talking about we were talking about our frustrations, actually, with everything going on in society right now. But, but we were also productively asking the questions about what we were learning as a result of this whole uh, COVID crisis and all of the craziness that we're witnessing in the culture around us. We mentioned some of the things that we've discussed from up here over the past couple of months, the priority of love for one another, the precious privilege that we have learned that we have to gather together. And then he mentioned something that I think is absolutely true, but maybe we aren't thinking enough about. He said, and I've really been noticing just how precious and fragile the unity in the church is. If you remember way back at the beginning of February, when, when, when the world was a completely different place, Pastor Don Green was here for the Seek the Lord conference. And if you remember, he ended up changing his last message from what uh, we were asking him to preach to the topic of church unity. He began that message by telling us uh, that he had observed in the unity of our church something that he described as exceedingly precious and rare. He used that message to implore our church to guard and protect that unity with all of our hearts. And he, he actually doubled down and he emphasized after spending time with us that he believed that, that the final message that he preached that day, the one on church unity, was the reason that God had brought him to our church. He told us that it is the duty of every member of the church to fight with all of their might to protect that unity. And he warned us that everything that we have come to love and come to appreciate so much about what we have seen this church become could be absolutely destroyed if we as a church do not remain diligent in this battle. And it's not enough to, to just enjoy the unity that we have, but we must be diligent to fight for it, eager to maintain it. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We cannot be passive about church unity and just take it for granted. We must be active. When Pastor Don Green presented us with that message on the first day of February, we could have never imagined where we would be, not even six months from that day, how a, a virus, how the, the, the scream of, of social justice the, the rioting, the, the media, the politics, how, how all of that could, could so fracture and divide Christians across the country and even begin to sow seeds of bitterness, arrogance, critical spirits, fear, and distrust, even into a church that is as I feel doctrinally unified as our church is. 
And while I don't yet think any of us see the type of widespread division in our church that is common in some, I do believe that each of us needs to be looking in our hearts all the time and testing the comments in our conversations to make sure that they demonstrate the priority of the gift of church unity. Again, I don't think we are seeing anything patently divisive, but I do think it is appropriate now, in this day, to borrow Don Green's metaphor of being those who are at the point of witnessing those first smoldering embers that are landing in a dry patch of grass in the forest. Maybe no fires yet, but the sparks that can ignite the fire that could bring down everything that we have come to love and enjoy so much in our church, they are present. It is so easy, so easy for me to see God's providential hand in bringing us today and next week to these four verses in Philippians 2. At this time in the history of our culture and in the history of our church, these verses are desperately needed. And it is my prayer that over these next two weeks, God will use his own word contained in these four verses as, as the, the cold water in the face that we may need to wake us up to our duty of vigilantly fighting for the precious gift of church unity that our Lord prayed would be ours in that passage we just read from John 17. Today we will be looking at the first two verses of Philippians chapter 2, and in it we will see Paul lay out the foundation of church unity. In verse 1, we're going to see the foundation of church unity, and then in verse 2, we're going to see a description of church unity. He is going to remind us of what we have in Christ and then appeal for the type of unified church living that should be expected from those who understand that reality. So I thought about a few different ways for you to organize your notes through an outline, and it might actually be most simple for you to just label point one, if, and point two, then. But if, if that's too simple, point one is going to be the benefits we have experienced, and point two will be the behaviors we must be marked by. So, these are the two main points, and obviously they're each going to be filled in with subpoints. In fact, as we read these verses together, you will probably easily and quickly be able to see the subpoints. And, and just so you know now, the, the final subpoints in point two will go much quicker, just so you know, as we're going through, but not too quick. So let's read these verses together, but let's start in verse 27 of chapter one to get an idea of the context. Paul's letter to the Philippians, one beginning in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also 
suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If you remember all the way back when we covered those first verses in 127 and 30, you'll remember that that entire paragraph in your English Bible is one sentence in Greek. And it's a sentence that revolves around the theme of letting your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. These four verses today, that, or these four verses that we're going to be looking at over the next two weeks also represent one sentence in the Greek. And as you look there at that very first word, so, which can also be translated, and maybe in your version it is translated as therefore, and you can see that Paul intends to connect the, the thought of living a life worthy of the gospel with the teaching on the necessity of church unity that we see in these verses. What we see here in verse 1 is Paul essentially asking, essentially we could think of it this way, as asking a four-part rhetorical question. There's four conditional clauses where the reader should have an understood answer of, yes, of course. Yes, of course these things are true. That should be what's in their head as they're reading verse 1 by saying, if there is any, rather than just making the statement that these things are true, rather than just doing it that way, Paul is, by, by doing that, he is calling the reader to affirm these truths in their own heart and in their own personal experience. Paul is essentially saying, listen to this list of unbelievable benefits that all who have been made partakers in the grace that comes through the gospel have received. Listen to this list, and have you not experienced these? As he makes his appeal for unity in verse 2, which, as we think about the, the connection to the conclusion of chapter 1, should be a primary way to live a life worthy of the gospel... He wants them to have all of these benefits of the gospel that God has made real to them. He wants those in his head as he gets into verse 2. He wants them thinking about those things. Because what we're going to see is that the argument is going to be something like, uh, from Paul, is going to be something like, in the light of these things, these things that are true from verse 1, how on earth could you not be making every effort to strive for unity? If these things are actually true, if these are things you have actually experienced, then it makes no sense that you would not be actively devoting yourselves to those things that mark church unity. All he is really doing here in this first verse is reminding them about what is true, what they have already experienced. But the language he uses makes it apparent that he is inferring that, that not striving for church unity is an indication that you have either forgotten what God has accomplished for you in Christ, or like those things don't actually mean that much to you. 
So under the, the first point in your outline, we're going to look at this list of four objective realities that are true of each person whom God has done a regenerating work on in their heart. Four things that we are not trying to obtain, four things that we're not hoping to obtain, they are realities for everyone who is in Christ. So first one, sub-point A, encouragement in Christ. If there is any encouragement in Christ, remember, this is coming right on the heels of those last few verses that talk about the benefit of suffering for the sake of Christ. So as we think back to that passage and and we remember that the reason that we can count it a privilege to share in the suffering of Christ is most profoundly because it is a reminder of the glorious truth about our union with him. We are in Christ And to be in Christ is the most wonderful and amazing thing that we could ever ask for. To be in Christ means to share in all of the blessings that he secured for us through the righteous life and the substitutionary death. And this this little phrase, Paul is calling them to get in their minds a high Christology, an understanding of what he has done for them through the gospel And so what are these blessings that we have as a result of our union with Christ? Just flip back a few pages to to Ephesians chapter 1. To Ephesians chapter 1, and just think through and look at these verses as as encouragement to you. 3 through 14, Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Any encouragement or comfort from that? Beloved, oh, to be, as reminded again after Brett's sermons, to be in our eternal perfected bodies with with minds that have been freed forever from the curse of sin, the, the diseased flesh that currently allows us to read a passage like that without 
trembling with exhilaration through, through clouded tears of joy because of that unbelievable truth. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before the creation of the world, before Genesis 1-1, the omnipotent, omniscient, holy God who created a universe that is billions of light years in every direction. That God chose to set his saving purposes on you. He chose to make you a created being who who would choose to serve yourself and instead rebel against him. He chose you to make you holy and blameless. A holy and just God chose to make a wicked and rebellious sinner blameless through the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And not only that, not only did he choose us, choose to set his grace upon you. Not only did he do that way before there was time, but he also predestined you for adoption to himself. Adoption to himself through Jesus Christ. It was the will of God to make you into a holy and blameless, not just individual, but a holy and blameless son or daughter of God. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. How does a just God accomplish his purpose of making us holy and blameless sons? The Son of God lived the perfect life that we never could, and that life is credited to us. Not our sinful, rebellious life. And then what about the eternal wrath of God that our sins and trespasses deserve? That same perfect son takes the punishment in full for those sins on the cross in our place. Is there any encouragement in that? He has lavished on us the riches of his grace that, that is all you will ever know. All you will ever know, Christian, is the grace of God being lavished upon you. That's all you're ever going to experience. Even, even in the trials that you, the worst trials that you experience in this life, they are there. They are conforming you to be more like him. In this life and throughout all eternity, every believer in Christ will only ever know the experience of having the grace of God lavished on them. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your incomprehensible inheritance, something something you do not deserve but is now yours as a child of God and co-heir with Christ, this inheritance. Brett spent the last three weeks helping us to unpack just the tiniest little taste of that internal inheritance. Brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow holy and blameless children of the living God, co-heirs of Christ, fellow recipients of an eternal inheritance, you tell me, is there any encouragement for those who are in Christ? Not only, not only is there, but is there anything that could ever offer more encouragement, more comfort? 
then your union with Christ. Subpoint B, comfort from love. Comfort from love. Again, all of these subpoints, you're just right there in the text. You can see them there. I'm just trying to help you think through them. The, the word for comfort here means something along the lines of, of consolation or, or solace. It's closely related to the word used for encouragement, but it's used, this word here that's translated is, is used only here in the New Testament. It has in mind the relationship of someone drawing close to someone else, providing comfort, especially in times of distress and discouragement. Oh, Christian, is your life not marked up and down? with the comfort of the love of Christ. I mean, just start with the way that we just talked about, that he consoles needy sinners in their most desperate situation. I think we can easily take the comfort from the love of Christ for needy sinners like us for granted. Because when, when God truly opens our eyes to our desperate state as sinners and rebels in the hands of a holy and just God, he also, in that moment, opens our eyes to the salvation that's been provided for us in Jesus Christ. But could you imagine, could you imagine the soul sickness, the, the inability to even, to even move around in the world if you had your eyes opened to the truth of your total depravity and that, that you have no hope, no hope of paying the debt that you owe, and the certain reality of facing the just wrath of God for all of eternity in a hell that's worse than any pain that you can possibly imagine. If, can you imagine if your eyes were open to that truth, but there was no salvation available? No hope of reconciliation with God? Only certain condemnation looming over your head every moment of your life. It would be impossible. It would be impossible to come alongside someone who would have a greater need for comfort, for consolation, than that person. And it is to this situation that the love of Christ comes and consoles us in an unimaginable way. Because it's not a comfort that just merely enters into our pain and hurts along with us. It's a comfort that provides a solution. He took that reality away. He took it away. And he gave us the reality that we just read about in Ephesians 1. Is there any comfort from love? Of course there is. There could not be a more desperate situation, and there could not be a greater comfort this is the primary way that we have all seen and experienced the love of Christ. But, but in light of the context from the previous verses about the reality of the suffering that God gives to us in this life, is it not the comfort of the, do you not also see the comfort of the love of God through Christ that ministers to your soul every day? The gospel reality that no matter what happens in this life, because of what God has done for us in Christ, no matter how bad things might seem in this life, no matter what kind of trial he asks us to endure for his sake, no matter what, we will always be able to say, along with Paul from 2 Corinthians 4, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed 
perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. And why is that? Because of what Paul says just a few verses later in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. Beloved, have we not gloriously, throughout our lives, known the experience, both both foundationally in the gospel, and then over and over again? and over and over and over again through every trial known the experience of the comfort of the love of Christ. Subpoint C, fellowship with the Spirit. Fellowship with the Spirit. The SV says participation in the Spirit, but, but fellowship with the Spirit is probably a more helpful translation. The, the Greek word for fellowship, koinonia, that, that we all have, have come accustomed to hearing, that, that's the word that's there. Again, Paul does not want them to merely acknowledge the theological truth that they have fellowship with the Spirit. Like, yes, that is true, but he wants them to remember how precious that truth is to them personally and corporately. To think through the reality that the same spirit that inspired the inerrant word of God now dwells within them as they read it. The spirit that that intercedes for us in our prayers because we do not know how to pray as we should. The spirit that is the seal and the guarantee of our eternal inheritance. The spirit that is the the source of your spiritual gifts. Those things that allow you to serve and to contribute to the needs of the body of Christ. He he produces those. He produces the fruit of sanctification in you. That which allows you to see the miraculous work of regeneration in your life as sins that that once owned you are taken away as he sanctifies you and instead replaced with fruit. He brings those things to put to death in your life the, the, the sin that you have come to hate and want nothing to do with in order to become more like Jesus. It is the Spirit that gives you the strength to do that, that strengthens you to do that, that does that in you. And possibly, possibly one of the most important things that, that they need to remember, that we need to remember about the fellowship with the Spirit for this current admonition that we're going through today This is what we read in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, where Paul says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The fact that we have fellowship with the spirit means that we have been united to each other. There isn't a single believer who has, only, who has only received a personal fellowship with the Spirit. All fellowship with the Spirit is a shared fellowship with the body of Christ. So, so you can see then how rightly understanding this truth makes any type of disunity absolutely foolish. 
Why on earth would you focus on any type of disagreement that you might have with a fellow believer to the point where you forget or minimize the magnificent unity you have as a participant in the fellowship of the Spirit that unites you? Subpoint four, you see right there, affection and sympathy. Any affection and sympathy? Now Paul reminds them of the affection and sympathy that they have experienced in Christ. That word that you see, uh, the word for affection, is that word that talks about a tender or emotional response from someone. So it's something that is felt. It's the word that Paul uses in his description for how he yearns for the Philippians. Look at verse 8 of chapter 1. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He says says it's the affection of Christ Jesus, meaning that they have experienced this type of affection from both Christ and from Paul. The word is connected with, the the word that's used there, it's connected with with the idea of sympathy or pity or mercy. That God saw them in the state that they were in and had compassion, had mercy on them. Have you not also felt the tender mercies of Jesus Christ? More than just an understanding, an intellectual understanding of his love in action and all he has done for us and the things that we've talked about in the sermon up to this point, but but his affection for you. Could, Could you not hear it in his words from John 17? And the primary way, the primary way that you see and feel the compassion and mercy of God is what Paul just alluded to in Philippians 1.8 when he is talking about his love, not through, not through some ethereal feeling of warmth that comes over you when you pray or when you think good thoughts about God. When you look back at your life, you see the tender love of your kind heavenly Father and your Lord and Savior as the body of Christ ministers to you. When a Christian brother or sister goes out of their way to help you, to minister to your soul in the darkest times, have you felt the tender love of God for you through through the loving arms of his body, the church, your brothers and sisters here, as they embrace you and help you back up and then walk side by side with you? side by side with you through, through some trial that would have had nothing to do with them were it not for the fact that God, in his mercy and pity on you in your helpless state, has united that person to you through the blood of Jesus Christ. And Christian, have you also have you also not had that, that sanctifying, that holy experience of a brother or sister in Christ coming alongside you and opening your eyes to a sinful habit 
maybe even a, a controlling sinful characteristic that has marked you for years, which you've been blind to. Have you felt the pity, the mercy of God? Is that brother or sister did not fail to bring it to your attention? And lovingly, with the love of Christ, continued to press in on the wound, even as you lashed out with accusations, with pride. Have we not all felt that tender compassion of God as he uses the body, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to open the wounds that need to be opened in order for us to be truly healed, to to remove barriers that we were unable to see so that we can be conformed more and more to the image of Christ? Do not look back now and see the compassion of God on your undeserving state as another member of the precious body of Christ gave their time, gave their energy, gave possibly their emotional well-being, sleepless nights in prayer to help you with an issue that at the time you not only did not appreciate, but you rebelled against and pushed back against. Can't you see God's tender love and care for you in that? And what about this? What about being a part of a body where you know, you know that at any given moment in the day, any given moment in the day, one or more of those whom God has mercifully united to you through Christ could be in that moment lifting your name before the throne of God asking our omnipotent heavenly Father to work for your good, to deal kindly and compassionately with you and your family and to draw you closer to himself. When when you think about that, don't you feel the affection of Christ for you? Last week, um, last Sunday, I had a question about a medical issue that our family is dealing with. And I was maybe a little frustrated because it was the weekend, so we couldn't get a hold of our doctor. So I did the next best thing, and I called Gary Brotherton. This is the next best thing. His understanding of biology and sports medicine, that background, plus his willingness to speak frankly, have made him an infinitely more valuable resource than WebMD. Gary first helped answer my question. And then he did something I'd have never gotten from a doctor. He stopped what he was doing, and he prayed for me and my wife and our family. This man who I would have absolutely no relationship with, no relationship whatsoever were it not for the blood of Christ that unites us and makes us closer than physical brothers. He took my family before the throne of God and asked for his mercy and kindness on our behalf. He took full advantage of the access that he has to the sovereign God of the universe through the blood of Jesus Christ on my account. And he did it out of love for me and for my family. When I hung up the phone feeling the tender affection of Jesus Christ for me as he used one of his servants that he has redeemed for himself to minister to me. 
Grace Church, I ask you in your life, is there any affection and sympathy? So you can hopefully see what Paul has been doing here is he has stated theological truth in the form of these conditional clauses. It causes you, is hopefully causing you to reflect on each one and to think deeply about how it has been manifested in your own life. He is asking his readers, and he's asking us by extension, to think through what they know to be true, but then remember how they have seen these great truths at work in their lives. To avoid the, the temptation of just speaking about these things as theological terms that are detached from their own lives. And as we have spent this time together up until this point, I pray, I pray that going through these truths the way that we just did had the same effect on you that it had on me this week. Because because how easily, how easily can can Ephesians 1 become nothing more than a text that we use to defend Reformed theology? forgetting that it is there to cause us to be overwhelmed by what we have in Christ. How how easy does it become for the love of Christ on sinners like us that we have seen through the gospel become something that we take for granted, to to read it in our Bibles and to, to hear it preached from the pulpit and then become, within an hour, consumed with anger, fear, or frustration over something we see on Facebook or here on the news. How easy it is for us to just take the Spirit for granted, to become visibly shaken by by the things going on in a temporal world, and to, to minimize the fact that God himself dwells within you. How often do we just take for granted the supernatural life of the body of Christ in the church? the tender love and compassion of Christ that is demonstrated through his redeemed people in our lives in, in, in so many unbelievable sacrificial ways. And it's, it, it happens for us so often that it just becomes part of life. This is why Paul is doing what he's doing here, the way that he is doing it. Because when you are rightly thinking about all of these things, when your heart is overflowing as you remember all of these glorious blessings and benefits, then Paul's plea for church unity will fall on the ears of those to whom it has become plain that any response other than fighting for and treasuring church unity would be utter foolishness. So with our hearts overflowing with gratefulness for all of the gospel realities that have been manifest in our lives, blessing us beyond anything that we could ever think and imagine. Paul now transitions into the actual imperative in these two verses. And the command that is here isn't actually be unified. It's not, he's not actually saying that. The actual imperative is make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. The imperative is to make Paul's joy complete. He is saying, if, if all of these things are really true of you, if you have really experienced all of these things, then make my joy complete 
So our first point in the sermon was about the benefits that we have received that that lay the foundation for church unity. That was the if statement. The then statement that marks our second point is then we must be marked by these behaviors. So point number two, behaviors we must be marked by. Once again, you can probably, you can just look at it. You easily see the sub points there. But I, but I want to spend a, a good amount of our time talking about that, that actual imperative that they all fall under. And you, you could mark this as sub point A then. Sub point A of point two, prioritizing the joy of our leadership. Prioritizing the joy of our church leadership. Why on earth would Paul bring himself and bring his joy into this? This passage could have easily succeeded in in convicting us of the need to pursue church unity by making us first reflect upon all of those gospel benefits that we just looked at, and then, then pointing us to the natural response to these benefits of the, the diligent pursuit of church unity. There's kind of this sense that I could have just ended the sermon after that first point by just saying, therefore, pursue church unity. And it would have been appropriate. But Paul wants them to know that his joy is at stake here. And he expects that that fact will make these verses more powerful and more convicting than they would have been otherwise. And and the reason for that is that he has such a high view of these Philippian believers and their maturity in the Lord as has been made manifest throughout the book. So if, if this was the Corinthian church or the Galatian church, he might have left their concern for his joy out of this. But, but, I mean, remind yourself again what he believes about the Philippians. Look in Philippians chapter 1. Again, look what he says. I thank my God in, in all my, this is verse 3, in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He has this, you can just keep reading, he has this high view of them and their maturity. So it is, is, is no wonder that Paul believes that these believers truly love and truly appreciate him. The, the leadership that he has exercised on their behalf and their desire to make his ministry as joyful as possible is evident to him. And he believes it because that is how true Christians regard godly leadership. They show a love and an appreciation for those who give their hearts and their lives. And in Paul's case, their freedom for their good and for the glory of God. And and we do this because we take the word of God seriously when it speaks of 
godly leadership. The Philippians no doubt heard Paul say things to them similar to what he said to the the church in Thessalonica. For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. There is no doubt that these Philippians knew Paul well enough to know that this, this was true of him. And just as it is of all who are true shepherds of God's flock, there is nothing, there is nothing, there's not one thing that brings more joy to any elder than to see those under their care becoming more like Christ. Nothing. To watch them throw off their sin and work for their own holiness and for the holiness of others by, by accepting and, and applying uh, even, even the most difficult of teaching and, and confrontations. And above all else, seeing the church love one another and fighting for unity. I have no problem speaking on behalf of all of the elders here on that. Grace Church, you need to know that this is how the leadership here sees you, as partners and partakers in ministry who have a sincere desire to please and honor God. So in verses like Hebrews 13, 17, which says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do that with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. By and large, we have seen and heard from this church a desire to live out that verse. Your expressions of love, are so encouraging and so frequent. There is no doubt in in my heart, in the heart of any of the elders here, that this is a church that wants to bring joy to those men whom God has chosen to lead the church. That is why I have no problem including this as a sub-point and expecting it to have an effect on you. Because I know that your heart's desire is the same as the Philippians, that you want to know, you have the desire to know of any additional way that you can bring joy to those who diligently labor among you. Therefore, let me, again, just say on behalf of the elders that nothing brings us more joy than authentic, intimate church unity and to see a church that prizes and fights for it. And it is something that the, that the leadership of this church desperately needs the church to be striving for because the earliest cracks, the earliest cracks in the, in the, in the sweet unity that we have here, they're going to be seen and felt by you first. These next four subpoints that, that really describe what unity looks like, those places Within the church where these things are not being lived out and not being practiced, they're going to be noticed by you first. You're going to notice them in in little comments, in little actions or inactions, in, in barely noticeable shifts among individuals in the congregation in their priorities or in their lifestyles. 
You all will see these little things first and, and you will have the opportunity in that moment to stamp out those sparks before they become a fire. I have personally heard so many of you express so much love, thankfulness, and appreciation for the elders here. Your thankfulness for all that they sacrificed to help make this church into the people that you are so thankful to now be a part of. Some of, the, some of those, those men who have been here for a while, th- those elders who have been here the longest and, and stood through some of the toughest times, they rejoice when they think of you right now. Now, would you make their joy complete by working to preserve and nurture the unity that they have given their lives to making possible? Would you do that by giving yourself to these last four subpoints? And again, these last subpoints, they kind of stack on top of each other. They're similar, describing slightly different aspects of what the unity we're to be striving for looks like. So subpoint B, being of the same mind. Being of the same mind. This means that a mark of true unity is to be like-minded. To be like-minded. But this is not in reference to, to necessarily to thinking the same in all of our opinions or every single little thing like, like fashion or, or sports or any other of those trivial things. It's best to think of this, as Paul has spoken before, as those who have the mind of Christ. Like-minded in the mind of Christ. Indeed, just, just a few verses uh, in, in verse 5 He's going to spell this out as he tells them in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We are to have our minds set on the things of the Spirit, not on the things of the flesh. Remember what Paul said in Romans 8, Romans 8 verses 5 through 8, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We must be diligent to ensure that in a that in a world that is constantly attempting to draw our minds back to the things of the flesh, that our minds are filled, filled with the things of the Spirit. Disunity happens when fleshly thinking begins to creep its way back into the believer's mind. When the things that govern the world's thinking begin to govern the believer's thinking. So in our current cultural climate, if you're going to protect church unity, if you are going to do your part to protect church unity, you need to step back and take, take an honest assessment of yourself and sincerely ask, how much are the things that are currently dominating the minds of those who are of the world impacting my thinking and my decision-making? Things like, Fear. 
fear of the virus, fear of your mortality, fear of never going back to life as normal. Freedom, not your freedom in Christ, but the, the type of freedom that we think is, a, is, is, is so necessary as Americans. Politics, political agendas, issues of social justice, all of these, you, you can fill in the gaps. If, if you are regularly giving your mind over to all of these same things that control the decision-making of an unbelieving world right now, and you begin to experience some sort of bitterness or disunity with your brothers and sisters in Christ, it is almost certainly related to the areas in which your mind is prioritizing fleshly things. Subpoint C, point two, having, having the same love. Having the same love. The, the love that flows out of all of the gospel benefits that we, that we just read about in verse 1, that love of 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. The, the love that believers have for one another comes from the shared understanding of the love that Christ had for us. Namely, a love that did not concern itself with how easy or hard we might be to love. Christ loved us, though we were enemies of God. He brings glory to himself in his decision to love those who are wholly unworthy of it. Having the same love means that we are to love one another without distinction. The fact that some people might be easier for you to love than others, that should mean absolutely nothing to you when it comes to your interactions with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Other than possibly demonstrating to you that you don't understand the richness of the love of Christ toward you like you should, at least not in that moment. We are able to have the same love because the love of Christ that we have experienced, when we understand it rightly, keeps us from keeping a record of wrongs. It keeps us from remembering and filtering everything through past offenses when it comes to anyone in the church. It covers over a multitude of sins. It allows us to continue to have a forgiving attitude over every single offense because we know what we have been forgiven of in Christ. There's, there is no offense against you that, that could even be placed on the same measuring rod as just one of your sins against a holy, infinite God, having the same love. Subpoint D, being of full accord. Quickly, being of full accord, this literally means being of one soul, a unity in spirit that is so close that it's as if we share a soul. It means that there's, there's no place for any type of, of selfishness or self-serving attitudes. It describes that this total agreement of attitude and feelings. This is flowing out of, of, of having the same mind, flowing out of having the same love of Christ. This, this doesn't happen as we look at each other and, and try to be united in the Spirit, try to be united with one another. Right? It's, not, it's not us 
looking at our brothers and sisters in Christ and being like, how can I unite to that person better? It happens when brothers and sisters, when the church, everyone in the church strives for the mind of Christ and to be controlled by the love of Christ. And as we each do that, what happens is that we find ourselves united in spirit. So being of full accord, subpoint E, one purpose. I, I put one purpose. It says one mind. It's translated in the SV as of one mind because it's really it's a different form of the same word from earlier in the verse. But in the first clause, in that first clause, we are called to be of the same mind. But here we are called on to, to be thinking in the same direction. So the, the first clause is a little more general, and, and this use here is a little stronger and more specific. It's, it's very close to what was said first, but in this participle form, it can have the meaning of, of a unified goal or a unified purpose. And that's, that's what you see in, in like the HCSB translation um, or in the, in the NAS translation. The idea of being of one mind, even, even, even just that phrase, thinking of it in English, implies a unified purpose, a unified goal. Our purpose, you all know this by now, right? The reason why we are here is to glorify God through evangelism and discipleship. Disunity begins to slip in through the cracks when Christians get distracted from that purpose. This is exactly what we're seeing. Exactly what we're seeing in the reformed circles around the issues of social justice right now. And again, you can just see the obvious connection between all of these points, all of these things, you can see how easily we can become vulnerable to disunity when we start to let our minds focus on the flesh and then allow our purpose to become confused, which then causes us to look with suspicion at our brothers and sisters in Christ who we have been united with just because they might not be lining up with what we don't realize has become a new driving purpose in our life. In this culture, we are seeing so many Christians, so many Christians who do not realize that in allowing themselves to entertain new certain goals and purposes and giving, giving way too much of their time to thinking about those things rather than the things of God, they don't realize they don't realize that they are no longer of one accord with the rest of the body. Sure, you still may mentally and verbally adhere to all of these same things that we've talked about today. But now another goal. Now another purpose. One that has no eternal value has snuck in and become a tool for disunity without you even knowing it. You can see it as the smallest little, smallest little thought of bitterness, critical spirit enters your mind as this person, as this person doesn't seem to see the importance of, you know, whatever, the, the way in which you've been offended. 
You know, the, the importance of getting a certain candidate in office or out of office. Or they, or they maybe disagree with your well-researched position on the whole mask thing. Whatever the case may be, whatever the, the news or social media, Facebook, Twitter has you so passionate about right now, when you hear your now so-called brothers or sisters in Christ not matching your concern on this new belief, you are on the path to creating disunity, to destroying the church, because you have begun to live for at least in some little way, something that does not matter. Something that is distracting you and poisoning the one mind, the one love, the one spirit, the one purpose of the unified body of Christ. Beloved, we must see this. Right now, Right now, the world is offering up a buffet of issues and topics that are finding roots in the minds and in the hearts of even the most faithful Christians and are successfully getting them to turn their heads from our purpose, from our goal. You need to see that and understand that every screen you look at, every voice from the culture that you hear that's telling you, look at this, care about this, give your time, give your energy to this, fear this, be angry about this. You need to see it. You need to see it all as potential church-dividing poison. It is being dumped into your soul. And you need to be ever more aware of it as you see yourself becoming more passionate about those things. If Trump gets reelected, if Trump doesn't get reelected, if we're forced to wear masks into every store that we go into for the rest of our lives, if the government starts taking away our guns, if the government moves so aggressively towards socialism that the United States dissolves if our country becomes a territory of China, what has changed about your calling to persevere in church unity at all costs? In what ways would you now be permitted to think differently about your brother or sister in Christ who wasn't as passionate about those things as you were? In what ways has the purpose of the church been affected? None at all. Because even though CNN, Fox News, and every social media outlet is screaming at us about the things that you need to get excited about, just remember the sermons from the last three weeks. You will not spend a single second in your room in the New Jerusalem in all of eternity contemplating any type of significance about those things. Not a second. But what will have eternal significance, what will matter then is all of the ways that you use your time here in loving service to God and tenderly caring for his church that he graciously, mercifully united you to. Beloved, things are going to get worse. They are going to get much worse. Much more turmoil will be coming to our culture. 
There, years from now, things that we can't even comprehend right now are coming. Things that will capture the minds and the hearts of the entire world. They must not capture our minds, our hearts, our energy, our passion. Whenever you begin to see in you the slightest hint of bitterness, critical spirit towards a brother or sister in Christ over some outside issue, when they don't recognize your offense, you notice anything starting to work its way into the cracks of your heart that represents any type of threat to church unity, as we've talked about today, anything that dulls our love and joy for those benefits that we've received in the gospel, or anything that tarnishes the distinguishing marks of a unified church that we just talked about, you see that worming its way into your life. You need to see yourself in that moment as someone playing with a lighter next to a pile of dry leaves on the edge of our building. And you need to act appropriately. So Grace Church, I ask you, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, complete our joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the appropriate timing of a passage like this as we are in a culture like ours. There's a testing going on in the church in our culture right now that that is new. It's different than than it's ever been before. There's so much, so much in this culture that while it is even important in a lot of instances. It's not eternal. Will you guard us? Will you protect us? Will you use us in each other's lives to keep us from making much about those things that do not matter? That we would stay laser-focused on why we are here, rejoicing every day in what you have done for us in Christ experiencing the lavished grace upon us. We will not take those things for granted and that we will strive for church unity with one mind, one soul, one love, one purpose. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who has united us together. Amen. Amen.